This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6. And the last time what we looked at is Christ's superiority over the priesthood and really a call uh, to the meat of the word and for us to get off at some point the milk of the word. And today uh, the author of Hebrews is going to continue with that exhortation to Christian maturity. So I'm going to read, actually starting in chapter 5, again the chapter delineations were done for convenience, uh, but there's a, there's a thought that's understood here. So in chapter 5, the author starts with, uh, starting with verse 11, it says, we have much to say and hard to explain. And he's speaking to his Hebrew Christian audience, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Going on to six. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. Again, this was a not-so-mild rebuke of the Christians who the author was writing to. He wanted them to get off the, the baby bottle of the milk of the word and to get onto the meat of the word and move on to maturity, to get past the rudimentary or the elementary teachings of Christ. Not that we forget them, but we just know them. They're just in our heart as a believer. It's as we remember our name, we remember these simple things. But a time to move on to maturity and to meat. So just as an illustration, this is a real baby bottle with a real nipple on top with real milk inside of it. Now... If I was to approach a baby who's used to sucking on the nipple and getting milk, that baby would, their eyes would get real big and they would start drooling and they would be really excited for me to come there and for that baby to take a hold of this thing and they know what's inside of it. However, a baby eventually grows up, becomes a person, becomes, uh, it is a person, becomes a mature person, becomes an adult. Now, if I was to take that same illustration and even speak to or go approach anybody here in this church one-to-one, not using an illustration, and I was to go up to you and I was to squeeze this, this is a special treat this morning, <laughs> and go up to you and give this to you, you'd be offended. And some people probably even leave the church, they'd be so offended. Okay? Why? Because it's an insult. Because I'm an adult, I'm mature, I'm accomplished, I'm educated, I'm working. I've got kids I've raised. How could you come to me with that baby bottle? So certainly that illustration makes a lasting impression. The question is, how long have we been Christians? More than a few years? Are we pouring into anyone? Do we desire a challenging teaching or do we want to just come every Sunday morning and be lifted up? Do we desire to go from milk to meat? to bear good spiritual fruit, to have our behavior now start to match our belief system. So it definitely makes quite an impression. Now these are some awesome things for the new believer or the seeker. Now, these are not bad things. 
But if I've been a Christian 10 years, 20, 30 years, I can just rattle these off. I shouldn't even have to look at my notes when I talk to you about them. But he groups them into groups of two, in a sense. So the first group is an individual's initiation into the faith. So this is a blessing. This is really, right now, I'm speaking to the new believer and the seeker. Repentance from dead works. Your works can't save you. You come to the realization after hearing the word of God that it isn't about works. I'm not going to work my way to heaven. I'm not going to religion my way to heaven. But it's in faith towards God. Really, faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. Elementary. Any believer knows this if they've been a believer for a while. The second grouping is the rites in the church or how believers interact with each other. The doctrine of baptism and the laying on of the hands. Baptism. You know, we, we do baptisms here quarterly. Sometimes we do it out in the ocean, etc. But baptism, this is very simple. I'm identifying with Jesus' death, um, burial, and resurrection. Uh, me going into the water and being put under and then coming out is uh, symbolic of me leaving the old life behind and being a new creature in Christ. Baptism, we know that as believers. Laying on of the hands. Well, this could be ordination into the ministry. It could also mean when... A brother or sister is really sick, and we come together and we, we lay hands on that person and we pray for them to get well. Simple teaching, very elementary. The third grouping is a, the big picture, finality, eternality, eschatology. These two are the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We know the Bible speaks about, because we know we've gone to enough funerals, that these bodies die. You, know, we could, you could be so spirit-filled, you could be so on fire for the Lord, but the body has an expiration date, unfortunately. However, the, the Bible tells us there's a resurrection of the dead. Not only the righteous dead, but the resurrection of the wicked dead at the great white throne judgment, and that's where this judgment comes from. For those who have rebelled against God, who have refused his way of salvation, they'll be judged for eternity, and there's a picture of hell. So the, those two groupings. Simple things that we understand. However, for the believer who's been a believer for a while, this doesn't have to be retaught, and it shouldn't have to be retaught, and that's what the author is saying. Verse 4. He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. This is important that we really delve into this. Uh, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that in different Christian circles, this is one of those scriptures that causes contention. Right away, the thought comes up. Arminius are taking one side, the Calvinists are taking the other side. But I think it's simple. I think we should just obey what the Word tells us. However, I'm going to go into it. few things. Number one, who is he talking to? Well, number one, enlightened. Enlightened to what? The truth. Right? The light of the word. The light of Jesus Christ. Ah, I get it. The spiritual light bulb comes on. Two, tasted of the heavenly gift of what? Salvation. That word tasted means to experience. Three, partakers of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit seals us upon conversion. Partakers meaning to share or participate. And four, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So these are the four marks of a saved person. So what is he saying under inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Now because this is such a hotly debated portion of scripture, 
I'm going to tell you that I humbled myself and I listened to Chuck Smith on this. I listened to David Guzik. I listened to Warren Wearsby. I listened, I read Matthew Henry's commentary. And I had my own ideas of what this was. So we start putting this all together. There's some points to ponder. Number one, he's not speaking to unbelievers. That's the easy way for the Bible teacher to take the way out. I'm not going to touch this one. Tread lightly. He's speaking to unbelievers. Not, not so. Not according to those four points. Number two, is it a hypothetical case where the author is saying, hypothetically, if this was to happen, but does the Bible warn us of hypothetical situations if those situations are not possible that we can stumble onto that? Well, another uh, idea, you have to understand who he's speaking to. These are Hebrew Christians. They're Jewish ethnicity. They've come to Jesus as their Messiah. They've, you know, had a relationship with the Lord uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They've prayed people uh, to health. They've been involved in the church. But what happens is now persecution is coming. And it's not such a great thing to be a Christian anymore. So because of that heavy persecution, they're tempted to just fall back on the temple sacrifices, to go back into Judaism. So far, that's still popular in the Roman Empire. And you get the heat off of you, so to speak. So they turn back to something that's not going to save them. Now, is their salvation stolen from them? No. Jesus Christ says that any, any external source cannot take from you. The devil can't snatch them out of my hand. Number two, did they wake up one day and lose their salvation? Where did I put my salvation? I can't find it. I've looked at it for it for weeks. Absolutely not. This is a conscious, willful part, effort on their part to turn their back on the Lord because of some external pressure. And today, some people go back into the world. Now, does this mean, this is very important, so if you're going to leave, don't leave yet, because you've got to get this part. Does this mean if you backslide, you lose your salvation? No. Does this mean if you sin, a grievous sin as a Christian, you lose your salvation? No. When we speak about the unpardonable sin, sometimes Christians panic and they say, well, what if I committed this? Well, if the Holy Spirit is still active in your life and you still have an active conscience, you haven't committed it. So let's not say what it isn't. Um, this is a, a, a willful part, a seared conscience, and, and it's just a decision that some people make. I've seen it happen myself. I would say this. You don't have to agree with me on this one. Again, it's a very hotly contested portion of Scripture. But I would just say this. Just obey it. Now, I've made... And let me, let me make the dichotomy here about Christian sinning. I'm a pastor. I still sin. I need to repent on a daily basis. Have I made, as a pastor, conscious decisions to sin? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God provides a way out for me. But sometimes I'm dumb enough not to take the escape hatch. I sin. Well, I did that so many times that I'm going to lose my... No, absolutely not. That's what repentance is for. Jesus died for those sins. As long as I'm tethered to Christ, Christ is tethered to me. John 15, as long as I meno, I, I abide, I remain in him, he remains in me. It's a, a mutual relationship. I desire him to my last day. So that's what we're looking at here. Again, what do we do? Obey it. Don't do what he says, whether the Hebrew Christians or us today. Don't do it. Verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. 
But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So the writer continues on. He uses a parable or he uses an illustration about a person's life using crops. Now, we can pull from two different portions of scriptures here. In Matthew 13, he speaks about the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, however you want to look at it. Sower sows the seed. The seed is the word of God. And there's different types of hearts. Some is good, fertile soil. The seed is received. It grows. And there's one particular heart that receives the seed and it grows. So everything looks good until the thorns and the briars grow up and they choke out the word, making it unfruitful. So there's a great parallel there. I would direct you to the Matthew 13 study to check that out. And also in John 15, John speaks about Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. As long as we remain in the vine, we bear good fruit. We're doing good. But he does speak about branches that are unproductive. They are not, they're severed from the vine. They wither and they dry and they're good for nothing else but to be burned. So what's the bottom line here? The bottom line is we should be producing fruit, spiritual fruit, right? An apple produces apples. An orange produces oranges. Jesus said in Matthew 7, from a good tree is born good fruit. You'll know them by their fruits. We're speaking about false teachers, but there's a general application here. A bad tree will produce bad fruit. And here we understand that in this crop, in this field that he's speaking about. Understand this is not a numbers game. Please understand that. I came from a religion where you almost had to have like a checklist and things you had to do to get to heaven. And even then, you still couldn't know if you were saved or not. It's not a numbers game. It's about healthy believers producing healthy fruit. And I have to ask myself, do I produce healthy fruit? Now, here's the question, or here's the point, because I, I don't want anybody to worry about this stuff. If you have nothing to give and you're barely surviving and you have no time and you say to me, Pastor Joe, I'm, I'm, I'm a single mother. I got three kids. The guy left. I'm working two jobs. I just, I don't have time to serve. Okay, that's great. When somebody else comes to you who's in difficulty and, and they're not saved and they need you, how's your demeanor towards them? That can be fruit, Christian character and Christian conduct. Are you inclined to receive from the Holy Spirit that this person needs you? You don't have to give them money. You don't have to give them a lot of time, but you give of yourself. It's that Christian character. So that fruit, Christian character, Christian conduct, they go together. Now, whether it's in the military or the police force, there's actually a charge that most people, bankers, lawyers, you know, other professions don't have. It's called character unbecoming of a police officer. You ever hear that? Or, or a military person. And if you violate that character code of ethics, you're held to a higher standard, you can be fined and you can lose your job. So Christians, we also have character too. We're held to a higher standard. So the question is, how is our character and how is our conduct? Some bear bad fruit in the church, unfortunately. My wife and I were, we had a day together. It was nice. You know, we walked together, we rode, we did a whole bunch of things. And we're walking through Hopewell, and there was a Baptist church. And the message was about troublemakers, gossip, slanderers. And I kind of snickered at that because they're in the church. There are some people who call themselves Christians, and they just gossip 
They slander. They're troublemakers. They're divisive. That's their fruit. They produce nothing else. And you wonder sometimes, why are these people even in the church? What's their angle? The way my pastor explained it to me is, he said, they're emissaries of Satan. They're the tares that sometimes Satan puts in to try to cause trouble and try to cause a ruckus. But that is their fruit. Verse 9. Okay, that's the tough part. Now you've got to stay for the good part. This is the really encouraging part. Verse 9, he says, But, beloved... Imagine if they stopped reading the letter just before verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. This has to be discussed. We have to talk about this. But beloved, I expect better things from you. If they're encouraged to change their heart, if they're inclined to go in this direction, to change their path, to repent of that downward path and go back and get right on the right path to the Lord. I know you're better than that. And I've been blessed to, you know, if I'm dealing with a person and it's maybe a, a discipline type of situation, to encourage them and give them that opportunity. Otherwise, you know, when you spend time with a person, and even if you're disciplining them, you're loving that person by giving them your time. Otherwise, you're just like, you know, get, get out of my face. I don't want anything to do with you. But if you actually sit there and you explain to them, this is the wrong path. You're showing them love. You're trying to get them to turn off of that course. Now, if we didn't possess the ability to change, then the exhortations to change would not be in the Scripture. So I want to encourage everyone this morning, if you're having a, maybe a flat relationship with the Lord, Maybe if you're going down the wrong path. Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews loves you enough that this is for you as well. There's time to turn around and there's time to turn the ship around and change. Verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the, the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish or lazy, alternate translation, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he continues this exhortation to maturity mixed with perse uh, perseverance. So what he does is they've got to be rebuked. And then he's got to pick them back up lovingly, dust them off and say, now let's go in this direction. Unfortunately, we live in a culture in America that everybody just wants to be picked up all the time, but they don't want to be rebuked. And that's not what the Bible does. And some elements of the Western church are sickly and weak because of this mindset. Ministries are pressured for numbers and, and tithes to start making everybody feel good so that they can do better. It's not what the Bible teaches. Rebuke and then to be picked up. He goes on, but God rewards the diligence that many of those Hebrew Christians had shown. God sees, I know, I know what you've been doing, and if I know what you've been doing, God sees what you've been doing. And brothers and sisters, he sees all the good we do as well. And a lot of the good that we do, and maybe other Christians don't see it, all the more he sees that. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And that's credited to our spiritual account. But we can't stop now. Just like if we're running a race... We can't stop in the middle of that race. We must go to the end. Remember, it's always too early to quit. 
If you're ready to quit right now, it's too early. Ten years from now, if you're ready to quit and the Lord doesn't come back, it's still too early. If the Lord hasn't come back and blown that trumpet and called you home, it's too early. So keep that in mind. It's always too early to quit. I love seeing the, the, uh, the, 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 the live videos or the pictures or the reenactments of soldiers on a battlefield. They just can't go anymore. And a brother officer, it's that fireman carry, they pick them up and they put them over their shoulders and they carry them to safety. You can't quit. If you lay here, you're going to get shot. You're going to get killed. And that's what we may need to do for other believers. Pick them up off the battlefield. Help them to continue that race. Take them to safety. Because you can't stay here. It's a bad place to stay. Can't quit. The author also was concerned that they might become lazy regarding their spiritual health. A person on the meat of the word should produce maturity and good fruit. It's a dysfunctional situation if there's somebody who's been in the faith and been in the church for 10 years and they have to have to learn the milk of the word all over again. This is offensive for us as adults. Okay? Take this point and apply it to the Christian walk. It's going to be milk all over the carpet by the time I'm done. <laughs> And we see, keep seeing this diligence versus laziness. Diligence versus laziness. You know, for my believers who are really into, whether it's bodybuilding or CrossFit or Tough Mudder or any of these competitions, you train, you train, you train, you get good sleep, you diet, you're, you're careful of the type of foods you eat, you're careful what you take into your body before you actually start the event. You try to make it to the end. Do we give the same effort to the things of the Lord? That's a shame to see somebody awesomely chiseled body, totally control of themselves, but lazy in the things of God. That's a kind of an oxymoron. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't jive with each other. Check this out. What if God said, because we're very appearance-driven in the United States, Western culture. What if God said to every Christian, at the strike of midnight tonight, the way you look now outside, that's going to change. You, <laughs> I didn't even say anything yet. <laughs> what God is going to do now, he's going to take all of us as believers, our inward devotion to him and our relation to him, that is going to be reflected in our outward appearance. How many of us would start panicking before the stroke of midnight? Now, I don't know in scripture anywhere where he says he's going to do that, but think about that for a minute. We'd really have to reevaluate our relationship and our devotion to him, wouldn't we? What type of fruit are we bearing? Because we can hide a lot of things inside. We can cover it with appearance, clothing, makeup, hairstyles, you know, all that kind of accessorizing. But God sees the heart. Keep that in mind. God sees the heart. Now, this could affect if our, our inside, our 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 heart is not right towards God, it can affect a lot of things. It could affect our family lives. It could affect you know, us really straying and some, sometime becoming stale towards the Lord. Uh, if, if I'm not diligent as your pastor, then I'm going to come up here and have nothing to say. So there's a real reality check for me. As a matter of fact, every once in a while, it doesn't happen that often, I have what I call a nightmare. When I'm going to preach and I just can't, I'm, I'm reading the words over and over again and I'm just, everybody's staring at me and I'm, I, and I'm in my dream, I'm so stressed out. That's a nightmare for me. But it usually shows that you're apprehensive about something. Anyway, let's move on. Verse 12. 
he says that you do not become sluggish or lazy, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitate those. The Greek word is mimites, where we get the word mimic from. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1. the more I'm studying this book, the more I'm realizing now I really think it's the Apostle Paul. There are so many plays in this book that come from first, uh, the Corinthian letters. So 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, the Apostle Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's the same word that's used. And I would say as your pastor, if I'm doing something wrong, don't imitate me. If I'm doing something fleshy or stupid, don't imitate me. Imitate somebody who's imitating Christ. Who are we imitating? Our friends? Our carnal friends? Actors in reality shows? Man, in this culture, and for Christians too, are we that bored with our lives that we have to watch Real Housewives or Jersey Shore or any of these things? Stupid shows. Just filled with garbage. Are we that bored? Seriously, if anybody's that bored, there's a lot of work to be done around the church. Just come see me. I'll make your life very lively. Who are we imitating? He says, through faith and patience, inherit the promises, the saints in the Old Testament, which we're going to get to towards the end of the, the book. And also, there's promises for us as well. A lot of promises for us, and I'll talk about some of them. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Writer of Hebrews is going back many years and bringing up Abraham. For what reason? Because Abraham was somebody who was an example of patiently enduring. Now, Abraham's life was fraught with difficulties. And I want to encourage you too. This is how merciful God is. Abraham's messed up so many times. But you know how God sees Abraham? I see him as one of my saints who's patiently endured. And we're going to mess up too. The worst thing that we do is beat ourselves up when we do something wrong or we fail to, you know, or we blew our witness or whatever and we just get so down on ourselves. You know, when we get to the heroes of faith, a lot of those people really blundered worse than we ever will. And God says, they're the heroes of faith. So when he looks at you and I, and we're under the blood of Jesus Christ, he doesn't look at us as, as some problem child. He looks at us with longing affection. Keep that in mind, because I tell you what, when we put ourselves down and we let other people do that and we, try, and we live in that, all that does is hurt us. All that does is hinder us from the achieving the great heights that we could achieve with him had we not been so down on ourselves. So I want to encourage you with that this morning as well. Now, Abraham was patient. You realize that a lot of the promises made to Abraham didn't happen until after he was dead, including the promise of all the nations being blessed by his seed, meaning the Messiah. But he got to see that, I'm sure, I have no doubt. Abraham died, and those pro some of the promises weren't fulfilled. That doesn't mean God broke his promise, but it was done in God's timing. And, and I tell you what, Western Christians, including me, we often have a problem with God's timing. You know what we're tempted to do? Put our fingers in the mix. All right, Lord, you know, it's been a few days, you know. I've got I to do something here. And that's what we do. We put our fingers all over it and make a mess out of it. Now, 
Here, here's the really neat thing, too. We look at the promise and then we look at the fulfillment. Sometimes the greater the promise, there's always a distance, isn't there? God promises something and then there's a fulfillment. Sometimes the greater the promise, the bigger the promise, especially in salvation, the greater the distance towards that fulfillment. And we have to understand that God is working. He hasn't forgotten about us. Again, it's never, it's always too early to quit. Verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability, it can't be changed, of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. So why did Abraham endure? Well, first of all, if you're going to get an agreement from anybody and you go to God, you know that agreement is going to be fulfilled. Not only did God make promises to Abraham, but he swore with an oath. And he could swear by no, no one greater because he's God, so he swore by himself. So he promised Abraham, and then he ba- God bound himself in an agreement that he was going to fulfill it to Abraham. How do you go wrong with that? Now we know God can't lie, the Bible says. There's some things as mighty as God is, he just can't do. Number one, he can't lie. It goes against his character. Everything starts to fall apart if God starts to lie. So he can't lie. And the second thing is God can't change. You know, when you're in a relationship and there's problems, you're like, you need to change. Yeah, we all need to change. But God doesn't need to change because he has all the information that's available. We change because we can find new information on how to do things better, how to be a better spouse, how to be a better employee. But God can't change because he's the best at everything. So don't play him at chess or, you know, bananagrams. Or, I love that game. So we know it's going to come to pass. But God promise us, he promises us things as well as believers. Number one, he promises us salvation. Salvation to the end. He's our eternal high priest. Even when we go on and we're in the heavenlies, it still continues. At no point does he cast us away. He promises to always love us. Isn't that amazing? Love is a difficult thing in our society. You know, you sometimes wonder if people love you for who you are or because of what you could do for them. Or it, it gets difficult. And then we put up force fields. We put up, you know, walls because we don't want our hearts to be broken. The toughest among us, we don't want our hearts to be broken. But God always promises to love us he promises that we have an abundant life, not just salvation, but we can have an abundant life. We don't have to walk around with a puss as some Christians do and the more miserable I am, it shows that I'm a penitent Christian. No, that doesn't, that's not true. Jesus promises us abundant life. Promises, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I see everything that you do. I see every tear that falls. And I could go on for, the, for another few hours. These are the promises that he gives us. There's been things that I've been praying about for more than 10 years, and they just have to play out. I know God hears every time I pray. Pray for my son. One day that's going gonna to come to fruition. I'm willing to wait. And I'll tell you, it's taught me patience. Verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us 
even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm going to read this in the Living Bible. Sometimes it, it helps it flow better. I'll read that again in the Living Bible. It says, This certain hope of being saved is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. And I submit to you that word. Sometimes there's a, there's the, a trichotomy between body, spirit, and mind. Sometimes there's a dichotomy, too, with the difference between our, just our flesh and our mind and our spirit. That's what this is. God does care about how we feel. God, God does care when we have a broken heart. God does care about when we're lonely. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. So a strong and trustworthy anger for our souls, connecting us with God himself behind the sacred curtains of heaven. Remember, think of the Holy of Holies. Only the priest could go there once a year, and he went there scared to death to offer that blood of that sacrifice. Here, when Jesus Christ died, that veil was torn, and it opened the door between, so God could be in the presence, man could be in the presence of God without fear. Continuing on, where Christ has gone ahead to plead for us. Not only did he give us salvation, but he also went to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and makes intercession for us. He does a lot of stuff for us. Do we, do, do we even deserve it? <laughs> you know, That's how much he loves us. From his position as high priest with the honor and rank according to Melchizedek. This all comes full circle to encourage the Hebrew Christians and also to encourage us today. We respond in belief and behavior and move on to maturity and the meat of the word. Why? Naturally produce good fruit. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for us. Some people in religion, they work, and it's drudge, it's difficult, it's, it's tedious, I have to. You know why I work? Good works are not bad, but it's how you look at good works. Good works won't save you. We talked about that right in the beginning. I do good works because my wife and I, every day, almost every day, we're like, oh, God's just so blessed us. We're not millionaires, we don't go on multiple vacations, we... But you know what? God has just blessed us. And we just love him and we just want to bless him back as, as much as we can. So we're not working our way into heaven, but we're working because he's loved us so much. He's, his affection toward us, we want to return that as well. This hope that we have in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is the anchor for our souls. It keeps us firmly where he and we want to be in the midst of life's waves and storms. I was going to bring in an anchor, but they're kind of heavy. I can fit a lot of things behind this pulpit, but, you know, I, I decided to pass on that. Let me read to you the definition of anchor. It says it's a device normally made out of metal that is used to connect a vessel, a ship, to the bed of a body of water. Some of those beds can be really deep to prevent the craft from drifting due to wind or current. A permanent anchor is used in the creation of a mooring, more of a permanent anchoring, and is rarely moved. Anchors can weigh up to several tons. It could weigh up to the size of a truck or a tractor trailer. That's how heavy these things are. And there's a certain way that they set the anchor, and they drag it so it can dig into the bed and hold firmly. See, the Hebrew Christians thought that if I avoid the situation, I'll be fine. If I turn my back on the Lord, I'll be fine. The Romans will get off my back. And they were wrong. And if we ever do anything 
He's the anchor for our souls. Why would we turn away from that? We're just on a dinghy in the middle of a, a tempestuous storm in the middle of an ocean. How foolish is that? So there's an application for us too. Hebrew Christians, or he was telling the Hebrew Christians to use the Lord Jesus as an anchor to hold on to that hope in the midst of life's storms. And I'll tell you this, bringing it full circle for us, we're on the milk of the word. At some point, we move on to the meat of the word. When we're on the meat of the word, hopefully, our behavior follows our belief system. We produce spiritual fruit. And all the while, Jesus Christ is our hope. We have relatives that pass on. We go through tragedies in our life. We could be a little boat, a little sailboat in the middle, middle of the ocean with 50-foot waves and say, you know, maybe that'll work for me. Or we can use Christ as our anchor. Set that anchor, set it deep with that metal chain that goes all the way up to that ship. And as the waves come, as the storms come, that boat will move a little bit. Does God protect us from every single thing in, in this life? Of course not. We do have to go through storms in life. We're going to get wet. We're going to get seasick, right? We're going to be hanging off the side of the boat because we're really sick. However, that boat is not going to move very far. If you GPS it, it's still going to be in the same spot, although it might feel difficult. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, this morning, let the Lord Jesus Christ be the anchor for your souls. Let's obey the word. Let's do what he says. And you know what? We'll never be disappointed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the writer of Hebrews...